This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? We hope that you use those Easter traffic jams to get through your backlog of podcasts. Nothing calms the kids down like a discussion of the EU retained law bill, RIP. I'm Andrew Harrison, and on today's edition, Rishi Sunak reportedly plans an election for October 2024. Can we stand the excitement and drag it on for another 18 months? Plus, has Labour's bizarre attack ad on Sunak backfired? Junior doctors go on strike, and Elon Musk finds new and inventive ways to make Twitter even more objectionable. Let's meet the panel who are going to be weighing these weighty matters. She's a political journalist about town. She's the author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. And she's a columnist at the New Statesman. It's Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie Leconte. Hello. Uh, congratulations on being blocked by Theresa Coffee, by the way. I can't believe that I'm still not over this. So, like, um, for context, she tweeted, and it was very funny. She tweeted a picture uh, introducing some new bathing spots in England. And it's her looking absolutely thrilled while standing on clearly quite a muddy beach in incredibly grey weather. And I made what I would say the gentlest of jokes of saying this is the single most British thing you can do. Yes. Mean, you know, the most British thing a person can do it's to stand on a beach wearing a coat looking like it's the best day of their life. Um, and yeah, and she blocked me for it and then I actually I found out earlier today that she's also gone round and blocked people who retweeted it. So I think it's fair to say she has gone uh, mental in uh, recess. What a snowflake. Oh, in fact a mudflake <laughs> on, on a beach. I want to ask you uh, are you going to be enjoying the twilight days of journalism? Uh, because Q8 News has just you've unveiled the very first AI news presenter. She's called Feda, and she's a woman with light coloured hair. She wears a black jacket and a white t-shirt, and she looks pretty pissed off. Well, I mean, can she make shit jokes though? Like, can can she just make really terrible jokes that makes everyone go Marie or you know Feda? So no, I feel like I'm I'm not personally worried. I think you know, yeah, and no, I'm I'm just not you know. No, no offense to news readers, but I think my job is still safe. But I mean, the the, the news reader job itself is kind of. It's trended so closely towards human AI anyway. How will people be able to tell the difference? It is, and isn't it the thing as well of that how, you know, is there maybe a generational thing there as well of actually, you know, I could not tell you the last time I actually watched the news on television and I suspect that a lot of people my age and under are the same anyway. So it's not, you know, I think if that had happened somehow sort of like 20 years ago, that would have been a much bigger deal. But I don't, I'm struggling to, yeah, I'm struggling to get particularly exercised um, about it. Crazy young people with your Tamagotchi and your you know, skateboards. Gavin Esler is a legend of proper BBC news journalism, now Chancellor of the University of Kent, and he joins us from Berlin. Gavin, what are you doing in Berlin and what are the vibes like? Uh, well, um, I'm drinking beer, not actually at the moment, but I will be shortly, I hope. Um, Good eating you. Spargel, it's Spargelzeit, so it's asparagus time in Berlin, which is a, a great uh, reason to be here. I'm seeing friends and relatives. I've got uh, my wife's relatives uh, live in Berlin and uh, I've been going to some see some jazz because it's a great place to see jazz German jazz what could be better um so Easter is now becoming the annual festival of we didn't vote for this oh yes you did and uh polls are indicating increasing re- regret at us leaving the EU would a smart pro-EU movement be making more of like the nightmare getaway time of the year you know banners at Dover and stuff yeah well I, I think 
when the political becomes personal, when you get stuck in a queue or your kids can't go on a, on a trip or, uh, you know, I'm Chancellor of the University of Kent in Canterbury, the businesses know that kids from uh, Holland, Be- uh, Belgium and uh, the north of France who used to come over very easily are finding it very, very difficult now the other way. And um, yeah, now would be a really good time, actually. And it, it extends to all kinds of parts of our life. For example, the band I went to see on Friday night, it's called Mammal Hands. They're from Norwich. They're three guys play jazz. I don't know what trouble they had coming here, but I do know that musicians trying to come and do a European tour are subjected to new laws about cabotage, how many trips you can have with the same truck and so on, uh, before you have to change to an EU-type truck. All this nonsense all of it is utterly self-inflicted, including the, the queues at, at Dover. And it may very well get worse. People think that by the autumn, the queues at Dover might get even worse. And I'm talking about the people at the port there. So uh, we have done it to ourselves and we could undo it. And we could start by pointing out that it's, that, that, well, we'll list the Brexit benefits later in the programme, shall we? Completing the panel, it's Ahir Shah, comedian, writer and actor. Yes, he is in Jurassic World Dominion, playing third Velociraptor on the left. Hello, I hear. Finally acknowledged. (laughs) Can you make the noise? I thought you were really great at doing the noises in the movie. Clever girl. It's like I'm there. So there is depressing news about going out. And as a stand-up comedian, this is very much on your doorstep. The British Retail Consortium says retail sales are up by about 5.1% last month, but it all went on, well, most of it, went on home accessories and furnishing because people just aren't going out. Streaming services are up as well. We should be encouraging people out of the house to spend money like they used to, shouldn't we? And not just for stand-up comedy. Well, uh, I think maybe if if we hadn't uh, sort of blown uh, eat out to help out on getting everyone infected uh, with a deadly disease uh, when we did, then now seems like it might actually be a useful time uh, for the hospitality sector. I think that, listen, a a lot of this is hardly surprising uh, when you look at the degree to which prices are going up uh, generally and comparing the cost of a meal out versus cost of streaming something at home uh, or whatever. I think it also does uh, is worth mentioning that March's weather was unusually wet and cold. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, like, it feels like we're now moving into a thing where the unprecedented becomes the normal, uh, as terrifying as that is, over Mm -hmm. the course of the next few years. But this this was a very weird March, so maybe things will get picked up uh, when it gets a bit warmer. I do think that uh, also working from home for those who are able to work from home has now like led to a massive impact. Like things tend to have sort of settled slightly in terms of, for example, transport usage and stuff, I think has settled like rail usage has settled somewhere in the 70s compared to pre-pandemic outside of London in about the 80s inside of London. That is, of course, going to have a drastic knock-on effect into all sorts of different businesses. I do think that sort of 2020 may well have been the beginning point in a real realignment of how things in the hospitality economy work, the sort of areas that people go to, whether they do more at home or near home or whatever. And if that's a decade-long shift, then we're still very much at the beginning of it. Just bring back drinking on the tube. Yes. A, because like you have a couple of cans on the tube and just think, oh, I might as well stay out. <laughs> it, would be, it would boost the economy enormously, I think. You still do it, though. It's fine. You know, who took that away from us? Well, it was Boris, Boris Johnson. Bloody Johnson. I know. But now doing it is disrespecting Sadiq, so you can't. Oh, God. Ugh. You be nice to my tiny mayor uncle. <laughs> 
Now, are you ready for the white-knuckle excitement of election October 2024? It's coming soon. According to the Telegraph, Sunak's team are planning for an autumn 2024 vote to bring the best chance of a shock victory. Well-placed sources believe going late maximises the chance of the economy improving and a new small boats law taking effect to bring down channel-crossing numbers, the paper said. Sunak promised to halve inflation this year and overall it's forecast to be down to 2.9% from 10.4% by the end of the year. So it was going to happen anyway and it's like me promising it'll be warmer in August than February and you should sack me if it isn't. So can a knackered and drained country withstand another 18 months of this kind of government? Marie, we've seen some 27 Tory MPs say they're not standing next time. If they're sick of it, how bad is it for everybody else? (laughs) Well, I think to be fair, the probably vast majority of those are going to lose anyway, I think. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they're kind of very much dumping before they're pushed. But I don't know, there's just a great aura of nothingness across Westminster at the moment, you know, and as, I don't know. That's very Jedi of you. Uh, yeah. A great yeah, aura I, of nothingness, I feel. I've had a really long day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I feel like that there is, I think, a bit of a lack of energy. I think for a while there was a sense of saying, actually, you know, we did need some quiet times and it's actually quite good that, you know, we can all do our jobs, you know, quietly and normally. And isn't it quite nice? that, you know, it's not complete chaos all the time. But I do think that people are getting quite antsy now, and especially because I think if you look at generationally, you know, anyone who's basically joined Westminster in any form in sort of 2015 or even like by, yeah, 2013, 2014, actually, because we had the India F, has never really known normal times. And that is actually a lot of people working in Westminster today because that's, you know, over a decade. because that's a decade. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so I do think we we have this, again, micro-generation of news addicts who are now stuck um, in a place where news isn't really happening. There's a whole lot of political so, cold turkey going on. There is, there is. And, yeah, again, on behalf of, you know, columnists everywhere, we are struggling. <laughs> we, are, we are not having... Well, I have no sympathy because you were the nicotines of this particular uh, blank look for Marie. You don't remember the anti-smoking adverts of the 80s, do you? Of course you don't. You weren't even in the country. But... Nicotine went, went around offering school children cigarettes in an advert. Uh, they sound cool. <laughs> yeah, well, they were pretty cool. There has been a small improvement in Conservative poll ratings from about 24% uh, behind Labour to about 18% now. This is interesting because when Sunak got in, there wasn't actually the traditional honeymoon period, was there? He just appeared and it all stayed bad. Now it's improving in a tiny way. Does this indicate that actually, for all our mockery, he might be doing a bit of the right thing? Oh, I think it is actually the right thing for him because, I mean, A, and I think so I agree, I think the point on uh, the lack of honeymoon was quite interesting, but that's also because, to be fair to him, he sort of arrived, you know, at the last minute and was like, oh God, I'm in number 10 now, so did have to spend some time figuring out what kind of prime minister he wanted to be. Um, so didn't have, you know, whatever other more traditional prime ministers have of arriving and being able to hit the ground running. Um, but also, you know, it, it is true he has had some victories and he's managed to to an extent, tame his parliamentary party. So I could, you know, I can absolutely see the case for saying maybe, you know, A, maybe if we keep going like this, you know, people will start going, oh, actually, you know, that Rishi guy actually is different. But I think, you know, also part of the calculation is saying, can can the Labour Party keep that lead for that long, knowing that actually, you know, Starmer does seem to be making the occasional weird choice or, you know, give an interview where actually the quotes feel a bit puzzling or, you know, again, like the attack ad, which mm. we'll talk about in a bit. So I think there's that as well of that kind of betting on care tripping uh, in some way. Something will some happen. Point. Yeah. I was to say tripping on his own dick, but I feel like that's just not a thing. I should... No, you shouldn't yeah. say that. <laughs> Gavin, a lot of Conservative MPs are practically begging for a period in opposition. Can, can you sympathise? <laughs> I'm... I'm... 
perfectly happy to uh, to support them in that. I mean, what what does strike me about uh, Sunak is that he is in that long political tradition of people when they're forced to do something, they then pretend it's a strategy. So his strategy is to delay till October 2024, because if he goes before that, things might be even worse. And, you know, it didn't really work for the Brown government. It didn't work for Major, as far as I remember. So um, I'm I'm not quite clear what what, uh, what else he could do. And I suppose uh, there is one way of keeping uh, rebellious conservative backbenchers into line, which is to threaten if you if you don't agree with me, we can always go earlier and you can go off and do something else earlier because you might lose your seat. Well, like me, uh, you're old enough to remember the visible rot of the major government and how drag it out to 1997. I mean, even using proroguing parliament before it was cool, uh, you know, didn't really produce the uh, the desired result. It just it just postponed the inevitable. Is that happening here? Is the it, I mean we don't we never want to jinx it by imagining that the inevitable is a conservative defeat. Yeah, I, I just wonder. You know, it's uh, Mr. Micawber hoping that something will turn up, and that was what uh, bedeviled John Major, who I have to say, compared to some of the pygmies nowadays, was a was a giant when you think about it. And also, he was he was somebody who had a bit of experience of life outside this sort of Etonian Oxford public school cloisters. So, um, but he he had no alternative. I think Sunak has no alternative either. What, what's also interesting is he doesn't seem to have very many ideas. I mean, they have the wedge issues, the constant wedge issues about uh, trans rights and about boat people and about, you know, we're going to scrap all these EU rules and regulations, which we probably aren't. But it, what is he there for? What is the point of Rishi Sunak? And I'm not quite sure I know the answer to that. I mean, it is entirely possible this is just a feint from the Telegraph. Um, I mean, Conservative constituencies have been hustled into getting their candidates sorted as soon as possible. So it's not it's not impossible that it might be earlier or it might be this year. No, it's not. But uh, but equally, it's the you know that what was that that old TV series from around the time of Major where there was a there was a, a sort of wicked chief whip who who used to say we're going to put a bit of stick about. So they're putting a bit of stick about by suggesting to these Tory MPs we're going to make sure that everybody's selected for the general election. By the way, there was going to be an election. It would be useful if you fell into line. I think that's what it's about rather than anything else. That would be the original House of Cards with the original Francis Urquhart. You might say that. I couldn't possibly... You, know, you might think that's that. I couldn't possibly one. say anything. That, that's the one. Now it's all coming back to me, like a uh, like the, the end of the major period, like a bad dream. I was going to make a different point but before I jump into this. I think actually the most memorable quote from the UK House of Cards is still, Daddy! Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it haunts my nightmares to this day. Uh, but no, the point I was going to make, like, which is quite a boring one, I apologise, but is it also partly on the selection point that the Labour Party has been very good at getting a lots of selection stuff done mm. quite, like, quite recently? And actually, if you're the Tories, you know, and especially someone standing down or whatever, you do not want Labour having free reign, you know, for a year, and year, year and a half to just be like, I, you know, we have a candidate and they're going to go like on the you know door knocking and we don't really have anyone yet. So that, that, that may be that as well. Gavin, as, uh, as Marie just mentioned, the big story of the weekend was this weird Labour attack ad on Sunak. Do you think adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. Uh, Starmer said he will stand by every word Labour has said on the subject, but Yvette Cooper's distanced herself from it. It seems to be that we can't actually find where this ad originated. Nobody wants to claim it. It looks like a bit of a self-tarnishing mistake. 
It does look like a mistake, but I mean, I think it looks like a mistake because all Labour has to do between now and the election is to keep thinking of variations of the same theme, which is, are you really better off under the Tories? I mean, seriously, are you better off now than you were? Is the NHS better off? Are your schools better off? Is industrial relations better off? Do you feel that you've got more money in your pocket? And they just need to keep banging at that. So to me, it struck me as A, a distraction, and but B... I know I read about it in The Guardian, but I don't think people are going to give, you know, the worst that could be said is that Starmer is just like all the others. That that could actually stick. He's just like all the other politicians. Um, but I just, I frankly don't think anybody's going to remember it by October 2024 or next weekend, actually. I mean, I hear it is fair to say that the Tories do have a terrible record on prosecuting rape and sexual offences in particular. But that's not the same as saying Sunak doesn't think these offenders should go to jail, is it? I mean, is it? Is it out of character for Starmer to be saying this? Is uh, you know is um, is Gavin right that people will have forgotten about it by the next turn of the cycle? I don't know. So I, I think that it was an incredibly, incredibly weird um, thing to put out into the world. So as as I think that we'll talk about later, I don't really use Twitter anymore, and so I get sort of you know like friends will send me things if they think that I'll find it interesting or send me screenshots about uh, whatever. And so when you see that, you know, like when someone sends you something and you're like, is that is that like a weird meme that someone's yeah. made, or you're they like, do oh, no, this, is, this is the yeah. official, this is the official Labour Party saying this, and it's just, yeah, like, especially after I think that Starmer was very right to feel aggrieved when Boris Johnson said what he said about Jimmy Savile yeah. in the House of Commons, and Starmer, you know, you can see video footage of like people yelling at Starmer in the street about that, right? And there's this like. You know, weird importation transatlantic of this uh, sort of like QAnon-ish thing where and everyone I disagree with is either like defending or like an, an apologist for pedophiles and this, yeah. this thing, kind of thing. And I think like particularly when that's been targeted at you, which can't feel nice, uh, right? Like I'm sure that like I, I just fully don't understand uh, why, why on earth uh, something like that would be put out when particularly Rishi Sunak wasn't even in parliament for a lot of that sort of thing. I mm. think Starmer himself was involved in like the uh, public prosecutions and like sentencing guidelines and things uh, at that time. It, it just, yeah, I, d- I, I did not like it. it. And particularly given the tone of some of like far right commentary uh, at the moment, which also has been bolstered by the current Home Secretary, which is insane in and of itself. Uh, I did think that particularly those words next to that picture did not feel great. Yeah. Um, well, Michael Duger, who used to run this stuff for Labour, issued a series of very punchy tweets, which basically said, look, politics is a dirty business. Everybody does it. There's no downside for Labour because people who are going to vote Labour are not going to be put off by this. It's going to speak only to people who are wavering. And basically it works, he argued. Oppositions in particular have to controversialise to cut through, is what he said. So mm. we're basically saying, you know, farewell to they go low, we go high. It, in as much as they go low, we go high ever really existed. Uh, but don't know, it, it, it's an odd thing to say that oppositions have to controversialize to cut through at a time where the opposition is like 20 points ahead in all of the polls, right? Like I I could more readily believe that, like someone saying that that's a necessary tactic or what have you, if the opposition were far behind and like needed to make as much noise uh, as possible in order to attract uh, any sort of 
interest, right? But I, I keep going back to the um, thing that Johnson said in the Commons, right? Now, it was very clear at throughout uh, sort of Johnson and Starmer's exchanges at the dispatch box, which is that they properly loathed one another. Yeah. Uh, and very understandably, I think, from Starmer's perspective, because in part it was because of a lot of this um, below the belt stuff. But if you're talking about like the functional running of a country uh, and everything, the leader of the opposition as well as the prime minister, both members of the Privy Council, they will both have to talk to one another on things like matters of national security and defense uh, and things like that. These These are not... Like, in an ideal world, these should be people who disagree, but not people who really hate each other. Uh, and I just think that... Yeah, it's it seems... Narnia. <laughs> well, um, but like, I don't, I don't know. I, I do think that there's a difference. I, I got the sense that when I would watch Starmer and Sunak at PMQs that mm. they weren't two... They were two people yeah. who disagreed, but they weren't people who hated each other. And... Other people might think that, oh, that's probably like everyone should like is the leader of the Labour Party, so he should viscerally loathe uh, the Tory Prime Minister. And you're like, on a practical level, these guys do occasionally have to like talk to one another and get stuff worked out. And yeah, uh, it, it strikes me as the need to controversialize in order to get your message sort of seen feels like a weird statement when you're 20 points ahead in the polls. And when something like this has been unfairly leveled at you by a guy that you hate <laughs> doing the same thing to a guy that you sort of have to work with doesn't seem yeah. smart. But we are going to be in for a minimum of uh, a year and probably 18 months of Starmer versus Sunak and what could otherwise be the battle of the boring because both of them are managerial competence and not by nature wild controversialists. Labour strategists will definitely have... Um, looked at the problem of of retaining interest and excitement in a guy who's not the most exciting guy. Do you think we can expect more of these kind of like, oh, God, why have you said that? Mm, I'm not sure. Well, firstly, as you and I have discussed uh, many times, both on this podcast and otherwise, we are fans of boring. We're sort of fine with boring. Love boring. Love boring. Uh, and I would hope that over the long term over the next 18 months it's not just going to be a constant sort of tennis match of no you defend pedos no you defend pedos mm. uh and rather this will just be something that was you know it's a fuck up and yeah move on marie um while we're wrapping up the news of the long weekend uh, what did you make of the blackpool south mp scott benson getting suspended from the, the conservative party after his filmed offering to lobby ministers for a company that doesn't exist the Times filmed him saying that he could ask parliamentary questions and leak a confidential policy paper. Uh, it also had video of him saying that companies could get around lobbying rules by putting falsely low values on tickets for sporting events and gigs. You have to declare them at 300 quid, so put them down at 295 quid, he said. Ho, ho, ho. Um, well, I mean, you know, I think uh, my main reaction was to be incredibly shocked at the news that Scott Benton may not, in fact, be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Mm -hmm. uh, really, that, that came to me as a massive surprise. I'd, I'd, I'd not seen that coming at all. What I kind of find interesting is that, you know, one of the kind of subplots, I suppose, in what Scott Benton was saying was that actually it is quite a common practice for some MPs to do some dodgy things. Mm. Um, and yeah, but, but which again, you know, I think in a different world, I don't know, maybe at a different time of the year on a slower or busier news week, who knows, and not doing recess. I feel like that's something that could have turned into a massive story about, again, how has nothing changed 
post Owen Patterson. But weirdly, it's kind of come and gone. Which, yeah, again, I, I find weirdly interesting on a quite sort of like wonkish note. Well, I suppose what made Owen Patterson a story was that the, the fact that Boris Johnson threw everything at not trying to exonerate him, but just simply mm. to get him off punishment, and this turned the stomachs even of of his own loyalists and actually transformed it in from a, a bit of a nothing story that you could absolutely have taken the way you've just described the Scott Benton thing into mm. a kind of you know possibly the biggest well, self the end of his career yeah like, basically yeah. destroyed his career so another blow for the mastermind strategist Boris Johnson <laughs> there well done him Boris Johnson in destroying everything within his orbit shocker <laughs> yeah another another partial success yeah so clearly you know Rishi Sunak took the you know made the right decision of just suspending the whip immediately and you know starting an investigation um, but yeah, so it's, maybe he'll kick off again once you know we find out what the result of the investigation is but but you know, again I, I was quite surprised by how quickly it went away I just love the fact that it was Scott Benton because he's a horrible loutish figure you he know. really is. He really, really is unpleasant. Yeah, deeply unpleasant. Uh, here, before we move on, uh, we should talk a little bit about the junior doctors' strike. Mm-hmm. They're on a strike for four days. The government has said it's ready and willing to meet them if they call off their strikes and drop their demand for a 35% pay rise. Uh, so basically, surrender, drop all your demands and we'll talk. They don't <laughs> actually know how strikes work, these guys, do they? No, I'm, I'm not certain that that is quite how it functions, no. Uh, I think that like the, the details of the junior dogs' strike are really worth paying attention to so that I, I was trying to read a lot about it and there's lots of stuff that i didn't know like i f- didn't really appreciate that junior doctor just basically means everyone who isn't at consultant level so you could be talking about people with really really large uh, amounts of experience you know people are being uh, sort of coaxed to go to australia where the starting salaries being offered for junior doctors are double uh, what are being uh, offered here i think it's also Worth bearing in mind that there was a, like the turnout was really high for the BMA uh, during the strikes in England. There's a ballot for strikes in Scotland as well, which will go to ballot and that closes on the 5th of May. Uh, for these strikes that are happening in England, it was 98% yes. Like no one goes 98% yes for anything uh, under any circumstances. And particularly. That's like Iraqi general election <laughs> on the Saddam Hussein figures, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. And it's like, yeah, I, I certainly don't think that these people want in any way to compromise patient safety. These are people who are very dedicated to what they do for a living and it's a job that you are, not a job that you just have uh, sort of thing. Um, But yeah, it it sort of seems fair to give some sort of restitution given the erosion in their salaries over the last while. Like there's a thing of, all right, well, so it's interesting that the 35% increase is based on um, the BMA used RPI right for this so they said like since 2008 there's been a 26 percent reduction in the purchasing power of our salaries based on rpi and therefore it will take 35 percent in order to restore uh back to 2008 levels and there's been some criticism of this that like rpi is uh like since 2013 the ons hasn't used that as like a official statistic because it doesn't match like international standards and uh there's somewhere about like rpi is always sort of artificially high and everything so you, you hear that and you go like oh okay so it's like the 35 percent is a pretty high number. and then you're like oh what else is calculated uh based on rpi oh it's the interest rate on student loans uh that's uh so <laughs> 
it's like, oh, this guy, it's really unjustifiable that these guys want an RPI pay increase. It's like, well, you're giving them an RPI increase on the tens of thousands of pounds that you've made them take on yes. in debt in order to study this. In thing. order to do this job that you won't pay them properly <laughs> yeah. for. I also like the fact that, and I can't believe this is true, and I'm sure listeners will spot it and go, you're just wrong there. But it's like, oh, 35%, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, from £14 an hour to £19 an hour. Mm-hmm. Junior doctors working on £14 an hour. Well, it's, uh, and again, I'm using the BMA's uh, figures here, but they say that the net cost to the Treasury of the 35% thing would be like £1.03 billion, so like just a shade over a billion pounds net mm. uh, cost to the Treasury, which if the junior doctors are willing to accept that in the form of unusable PPE, exactly. then we could uh, really solve two problems at once, you know, like <laughs> offload a lot of gear, uh, <laughs> they get some cash, they'd be happy. I'm old enough to remember when a billion quid was a lot of money before the pandemic. Gavin, a quick one for the Scotland desk. The uh, police investigation into £600,000 of missing SNP funds got quite surreal at the weekend when police seized a luxury motorhome from Peter Murrell's mother's house. Murrell is, of course, Mr Nicola Sturgeon. And the party's auditors quit in October and it's emerged that the public were not told about this. What is going on? Give us your, 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 your latest update on the SNP shenanigans. Well, uh, th- this is uh, this is the Scott spot from Berlin. So, as an expatriate mm-hmm. Scott in various ways, I'll do my best. Uh, I-, I don't know. Is is the simple answer? The more complicated answer is that uh, something has been kept quiet from people uh, in Scotland for a number of months, those 600 or so thousand pounds to fight a second referendum. People are asking themselves, where did the money go? I have no idea. And perhaps there's a very good um, answer to that uh, question. What I, I, as a politician, would say, what I can say is that Hamza Youssef, who's inherited quite a significant poison chalice uh, here, has come... Uh, has been writing a piece in The National, which is a Scottish newspaper, saying we are in a period of change and transition. You can say that again. It's not been easy. Tell me about it. Kate Forbes, who's a very talented uh, SNP person, has been sidelined. The ex-chief executive, Peter Morell, as you say, has uh, has been uh, been arrested, and we'll see where that goes. The communications boss, Murray Foote, resigned. And I was interested by the SNP president, Mike, Riss- Mike Russell, um, saying uh, that this could be one of the biggest crises we've ever had to face. Um, when it comes to independence, we haven't worked out how to do it yet. I think that is uh, also a great understatement. And one other thing I would say about this is, what I, I, I know, I know many people in the SNP and, and other political parties in Scotland. And the one thing that the SNP people I know think is more likely to make independence unlikely is a Labour government. They think that they've, with the Conservatives in power, Scotland's not voted Conservative for 55 years, or a majority of Scots haven't. Um, they think with Labour that that case becomes more difficult. And that may be what happens over the next 18 months. So it's going to be very difficult for Hamza Youssef, however talented he, talented he is. One thing that I've noticed whenever I've uh, seen like interviews with, you know, BBC News will have like a comment from Hamza Youssef uh, with all of these things. But like his statement is always words to the effect of, look, it's not ideal. (laughs) And like, I I kind of, I'm like, every time I read that, I'm like, man, that's what I'd say. Now, have you paid for your blue tick yet? Twitter, 
once the sophisticated coffeehouse of modern political discourse, <laughs> now more akin to a flat roof pub in a bad estate in a Nazi part of town, continues to get more and more unusable under new owner Elon Musk. Its greatest hits over the past few days include labelling America's NPR wrongly as state-affiliated media, then changing it to government-funded media and adding the same label to the BBC, all of which just undermines these broadcasters for no particularly good reason. Also, it removed restrictions to Vladimir Putin's account and allowed his surrogate Dmitry Medvedev to call, without punishment, for literal genocide in Ukraine. On top of that, it's been throttling links to Substack, the writer-centred newsletter site, which is one of only a few bright-ish lights on the benighted media landscape. Musk changed his mind about that one too. None of it makes much sense unless Musk is doing a Bialystok and Bloom to his own company. Is there a point of no return for the troubled home of the insult Olympics? I hear, as you just said earlier, you actually, you've come off Twitter and I was looking at it thinking, oh, what I hear's on about and there's been no tweets. And I thought, is he well? Is he okay? <laughs> Are you kind of, you've sort of basically packed it in since Musk took over. Yeah, I haven't posted in a while. I haven't like, I've just like, what what have I done? I've just like gone outside and stuff. That's quite good. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I, I is this do... a political stance or have you just lost your password? <laughs> no, I've still got, still got the access still got the uh, two-factor authentication and all of that sort of jazz. It's just been mainly like, I don't really like him and I was wasting a lot of time uh, Mm. on this platform and I was like, ah, right. And now if every time I look at this thing, it's just him being an asshole, probably that's a good reason to uh, put it aside. So as I said, I still like look at it from time to time where I get friends who send me uh, things on uh, WhatsApp and everything. I I don't know. It's uh, like you say, if he's doing a Bialystok and Bloom or something, or just to like, maybe this is a really selfless act to save the attention span of the world, you Mm. know, that like only he can sort of take on the level of like, he has to sort of sacrifice himself and take take upon himself all of our sins and then free us uh, from our obligation or perceived obligation to this. It sounds like you're with Twitter like I am with Witherspoon. It's like, it's a pub, it's got beer, but yeah, hey. I really want to. No, come on. Spoons is great. That guy. Is it? That yeah. guy. It's not. That guy. Oh, because of the guy, right. What else okay. would it be for? It's because of the guy. The beer's good and cheap, but it's that guy is what it is. Oh, I thought you were just being a snob. <laughs> no, I am also a snob, but right. it's because of the guy. But can you? is there any clear sense of what Musk is trying to achieve from all this kind of essentially dick behaviour? It just looks like he's racking his brains for ways to make it objectionable. But it's just like, it's like, oh, this is my toy now, you know, and it's the same way of like, I'm losing, so I'm going to take my ball home uh, or whatever. It's, it's, it's all... I think that it's all as petty and juvenile as it comes across, you know, the same as it always was with someone like Trump and everything, where everyone sort of carrying on going with like the four dimensional chess, taken seriously, not literally and everything. And it's like, oh, no, it turns out that he's failing to play tic-tac-toe and you should take him literally. <laughs> uh, that's that's how that's how this functions. Marie, uh, obviously, the podcasts are all on Twitter. We sort we sort of have to be. Should we get off it? I don't really know. I, you know, it remains it remains my home. And actually, I think what I do enjoy is that clearly Musk, I think, is not enjoying himself, particularly at Twitter, because, again, mm. he keeps having to U-turn on so many things he does. Everyone hates him. And that brings me some solace where I'm like, you know, also there's the sense of like if I left, I feel like it would be a win for him, which I know is probably a mad <laughs> way to think about it. But no, but, I, but fundamentally, you know, he, he wants people like us, I think, to leave Twitter. And I'm just like, no, 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 I'm not. No. Now I've realised I can make this like petty. This can be a petty fight. <laughs> then I will stay, Elon. I, I will cost you money. I'm going to punish you, Mr. Musk, by generating content for your platform that you may monetize. 
Well, yeah, basically, but also just complaining all the time about it. Um, but no, but also more seriously, again, you know, I've been posting, like, I, I've been posting every single day uh, since I was 18, I think. So I've never known a life without Twitter and I have no idea what I'd do without it is the slightly intense but serious uh, answer to that. So, you know, I'll, I'll let the tide take me um, if the website does disappear forever, which I think, and I think that's the way things, obviously you mentioned so many like very serious things and bad things Musk has been doing, but even the smaller stuff. So earlier today, I didn't see likes anymore. And then when I clicked on tweets that I saw, you know, had been liked by people, it wouldn't tell me what the likes were. Or, you know, the quite funny thing of like an author tweeted earlier today that for some reason there's been some sort of bug. And so anyone who tweets at him is also automatically tweeting at Kim Kardashian. (laughs) (laughs) And she can't be at it out. So it has to be him and Kim K. And he's had no idea why another friend, like his Twitter went uh, Japanese for 20 minutes. Uh, again, <laughs> okay. it is like, it is really, I think it is actually, actually starting to break in so many small ways. It's funny ways. you should say that because uh, our producer, Jarv, just shouted in the office before the recording, just said, my Twitter's in Spanish. <laughs> and it's just got Spanish. You know, like those people who have, you know, p- people who fall over in the street and wake up speaking yeah. Welsh. It's one of those kind of things. It's also so interesting because, like, so many people working on the software side of things have been fired, right? And, uh, you know, like, what does this do? And it just reminds me of, like, people talking about junk DNA before the Human Genome Project happened. And sort of then the Human Genome Project happens and it's like, oh, no, okay, it's all there for a reason. Oh, right. Mm. Uh, but then you just, yeah, you shove, like, all of your software engineers out of the building and then all of a sudden... You You're back don't... to Jurassic Park, aren't you? I'm turning against Velociraptor because I stood too near the microwave. Marie, I mean, there is a serious aspect to it, of course, which is that news and reporting budgets have been slashed since the advent of Twitter. And lots of the kind of re-engineering of journalism has been predicated on the idea that, well, you can just go and go look at Twitter, can't you? And whenever I see a story that says, fill in the blank, took to Twitter, I can mm-hmm. env- envisage the person in the newsroom just copying and pasting bullshit. If this stuff disappears, can we still do journalism the way we've been doing it for the past 10 years? That's a really interesting question, and I don't really have an answer. Like, I would not really know how to do my job without Twitter. So, like, given a very straight example, I uh, have been sounding, I think, quite knackered today because I spend the day doing interviews for a big feature I'm writing. Every single person I either reached out to directly on Twitter or was someone I'd met on Twitter and then, you know, sort of like we had each other on WhatsApp and that's how I talked to them. Every single person, like that story, which will be quite a long story in a newspaper, all of it basically happened in one way or the other through Twitter. And that, you know, and you could probably say the same for most of the stuff I've I've reported on. So, so you know, so I think on a really basic level, and I know I'm not the only one like this as well, a lot of journalists will lose access to sources, access to, you know, experts they may talk to, like in a timely manner especially. So no, so, so I think I, I'm not really sure that that does slightly keep me up at night, if I'm honest, of what would to happen if Twitter disappeared tomorrow, because actually journalism w- would change. I think massively content would change as well. So I think yeah, all, all the junk content would probably disappear quite a lot because there's so much like self-generating stuff via Twitter. But even the serious stuff is my thing. Like Even the mm. serious stuff, I think, will be quite severely impacted. What did you make of Twitter arbitrarily deciding to mess with links to Substack last week? Uh, Adam Bianco from Byline Times said, oh, it's just the richest man on the planet trying on a whim to prevent journalists and writers from earning a living. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was exactly that. And it was uh, infuriating. And I think it was no coincidence that Substack is launching Substack Notes, uh, which is going to be apparently like very short posts that you can post and they're going to be shown in a sort of like timeline fashion for all the people you follow. You can include links and pictures, etc. So they're basically tweets, let's be honest here. And I know a few people who've tried the beta version and have said that it's actually quite good. Like, it's definitely not Twitter, but it, but it is the closest so far. And um, so clearly, I think Elon is quite scared that, you know, someone else may have 
found a replacement that is probably more palatable to people. Just um, for, for those who don't know what Substack is, give the listeners the quick pricing. Oh, sure. So it, it, it's basically a, a newsletter platform. Uh, so you, any, anyone can create a page. And then, so now there's an app. Actually, it's quite app-focused now, but it used to be mostly a newsletter thing where you'd create a page and that would let people subscribe and then you could write blogs effectively and then that would get sent to people's inboxes. And you have the option of making them pay as well. So there are def- uh, different tiers of like paid, unpaid, uh, paid extra, etc. So you can get different tiers of readers and, you know, and they get different bits of content. So it, it is actually quite good in terms of, you know, if, you, if you're a writer who's got a bit of a profile because you can effectively run a little media company um, oh. by yourself, which is what I did uh, with my website about London, The Roost, last year. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it is actually quite a good. I mean, I think that there are concerns in general about, you know, Substack and probably, you know, that the fact that actually quite a lot of writers do definitely need editors. Mm. Um, and also, you well, know... they need subs, definitely, some of them. God, yeah. I mean, I am not going to name names, but my God. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's, but it's still, it's made paying journalists enjoyable. And I'm, I'm in favour of that. Um, it, it, yes, but also my concern is that, you know, if you're just a normal journalist who's a specialist in something that's not especially glamorous, could you ever make a living from Substack? Or is it actually realistically mostly the hot tech merchants who yeah. are getting the most dollar from Substack? I guess we'll find out as time goes by. Gavin, giving the BBC and NPR similar labels to Xinhua or TASS or the Iranian news agency, that's a dick move, isn't it? I mean, why, well, you know, just denigrating respected independent news organisations as if they are agents of agents of government yeah well uh, i suppose i mean he's a musk is a dead cat merchant you know he throws something on the table every so often to make us all talk about him and we are talking about him so uh, it kind of goes round and round i'm sure npr and the bbc will survive i suspect twitter will survive i, I take it less seriously now than i did before because uh, there's so much drivel on it i get followed by some really strange people who peering out of the woodwork so i spend a lot of time uh, blocking them and, and getting rid of them and i've never had a blue tick so i'm, I'm not going to be paying paying for one now and i i talked to uh somebody i know who's who's uh quite a successful businessman and i said to him why is it that some people in business who do quite well doing certain things then feel that we should be inflicted have their views inflicted upon us about all sorts of other things and he said you've heard of henry ford right and i of course i'd heard of henry ford but i had a look in 1918 uh, as he was doing quite well uh, out of the motor car business he bought the dearborn independent and 18 months later it was carrying articles about the vast jewish conspiracy infecting america and all this sort of thing now i'm not drawing any direct comparisons between anything at twitter and and what's happening there uh, what happened there but what you see is people who think they're terribly successful and they think that they're uh, kind of golf club boring views are important to everybody else and i think if you've got a platform as uh elon musk clearly has that's one that you feel free to use and to irritate people um but changing the designation of the bbc and others mostly in agreement with marie i do find it useful but actually if it didn't exist i think we would survive we'd find some way around it and it may be that he's got a death wish because he has been in terms of losing money he's been almost as good as liz truss so um it's been quite an extraordinary experience watching elon musk and the breaking of twitter and i'm sure there'll be books written by excellent journalists about how he did it Let's trust and Elon Musk is the sort of like buddy cop film that I did. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. This is the worst rom-com. Anyone has ever... When they got together, it was ruinously expensive. <laughs> I, I did like the, I, can, I can't remember who it was, but somebody haha, on Twitter did say, 
Say what you like. I think Twitter is going to make Elon Musk into a millionaire. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, just going back to that question of like what he's you know he's messing around with with legit news services. It's a key libertarian point, isn't it? That that there is no such thing as independent media. The BBC and NPR are liberal and not morally different from Fox or indeed Tassel Chinois, Iranian state media. Don't trust any of them. They're all as bad as each other. Is a key thing that the libertarian right has tried to get out there under the guise of the magic words of free speech fundamentalism. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. You know, they're, they're the kind of the truth isn't out there kind of folk. And um, the question is, it, it, well, look, if you look at the um, Reuters and others who've looked at how journalism and how reporters and reporting is, is seen around the world, there has been a reverse in trust in news just about everywhere. And it's been very, very bad actually in Britain and particularly bad in Britain. It's not been bad in Scandinavian countries or not been nearly so bad. So this plays into that uh, that kind of theme. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's good for him, I suppose, if, if he thinks he can break the news business and make headlines out of it. It's good for brand, brand musk in some peculiar way that I don't quite understand. Well, speaking of brand Musk, I hear one uh, little remark development is that Musk has just merged Twitter into his company X Corp, which very few people have heard of. Twitter Incorporated no longer exists, actually. Apple Insider, the website, says that Twitter's slow transformation from microblog into an everything platform has seemingly begun. And the everything platform is a kind of holy grail for kind of, you know, internet megalomaniacs. The idea that there'll be a Western version of China's WeChat, where you do everything from banking to travel to your socials, booking a restaurant, all that kind of stuff. You do it all in one place. And Musk seems to have an ambition that Twitter will become the everything machine. So I think, firstly, to take a moment on, isn't X Corp? A delightfully evil name. <laughs> well, yeah, or it's what well, it's what Professor X does to make the world a better place. Yeah, oh, okay, it could be that as well. But it just like to me, X Corp was very um, Hank Scorpio in the sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, I gather that his a while ago he had something called X dot com, which sort of fused into PayPal, which is where he originally made uh, all of his uh, millions, and I think maybe his first billions. He bought that domain name back in 2017 and so is trying to make uh, more, more of a thing now. I certainly think that, you know, if you talk about creating, you know, an, an everything platform, the app that you do absolutely everything from your finances to your social to everything about, and then you state that that is an app that sometimes for 20 minutes will just be in Japanese, you <laughs> want it to be. Like, this is not the app you should put financial information <laughs> into like i think that people who tend to be better at that are like banks like uh there's those sorts of apps uh that you'd have so i think that if anyway listen there's probably a conversation to be had about whether something like whatsapp will become uh something like that in the future certainly there's uh much more business use of whatsapp than there was even a few years ago and in uh, certain countries it's far more like it's far more prevalent in india um than it is here. Um, so there are apps that are trying to go about that and uh, achieve that status. Having it be Twitter seems like a very, very big call given the state of the app and given who runs it as well. Yeah. Like there, there's a massive trust issue with who runs it. So I would recommend a, a recent edition of Matt Levine's Money Stuff uh, newsletter was just uh, talking about how Sam Bankman-Fried was keeping 
people's financial information and the way that he was storing various crypto wallets that people um it, uh, he'd just like lie about it constantly publicly in interviews and behind the scenes it was a raging mess that people just should not have entrusted financial information to that institution uh, and this feels very like you know it's you're potentially opening yourself up for a world of pain if you uh, start you know innovation is messy <laughs> i hear disruption is messy you know so what if you want to store somebody's confidential material on like a dropbox somewhere or <laughs> just one of those little thumb drives with a made out of a pingu yeah. you know it's it's messy. Yeah. If basically, if you have confidence that that won't happen, then start <laughs> using it as an everything app. Uh, oh God! Just before we move on, I and sorry to return to a thing we were saying earlier, but I think I've actually nailed it. What we need is a movie with Liz Truss and Elon Musk falling in love and planning a wedding together. <laughs> <laughs> I think watching them trying to plan a wedding is the movie I would watch. Just that well, we can move on now. I, just, I will. Yeah. I will be giving some money to that Patreon. <laughs> so just in closing, then, um, if we could each fix one thing about Twitter, and you're not allowed to say Elon Musk just just join, runs off and joins a monastery, what would be a thing that you would change about it to make it better? If the option of Elon Musk not having any involvement mm. is taken off of the table, then I think that it's what I imagine will slowly happen and we're slowly going to move towards, which is that this thing will slowly wilt and die and then there will be something new mm-hmm. that will come in its place. I don't know what that is yet, what that'll look like. but yeah. Gavin, how would you improve uh, Twitter as it exists at the moment? I would get rid of uh, all this uh, rather vast amount of stuff from people that don't really exist who are clearly bots, who are... Mm. Uh, have sort of stupid ideas and who appear in my timeline. I don't know how to do that, but there's a lot. Ironically, that's what, yeah, that's, that's what Mr. Musk that's wants, what to he do. wants to do. So, yeah, but you he's, know. He's going about it a sort of well, then I support him, and I will even be at his wedding with Liz Truss, as you point out. Uh, sorry for being tech support, but have you tried going into settings and making sure you only see notifications from people who have both a picture and an email address associated with their account and have not created it very recently? Because if you take all those three boxes, that removes like 95% of the bots. Um, uh, well, actually, but, um, but, yeah. That's actually better tech support than you get from Twitter tech support because he's <laughs> fired them all. It's Yes, but no, I would say so. my serious thing, I think, and, and I've thought about it before, actually. On balance, I think quote tweets were a bad idea. Like actually, pylons and you know would, would well, I think you know like it, Twitter would be improved without the ability to quote tweet because I think that's where things go wrong quite often, yeah. and you just end up having a thousand people on your timeline dunking on the same person, making the same joke, which I think um, is maybe not the best thing. I would prevent um, MPs from be a, being able to block their own constituents because a lot of MPs do that. And lots of MPs do things like they will only allow replies to people they've mentioned in the tweet. Mm. So you get situations like Nadine Dorries uh, telling absolute clear untruths. She did a bizarre one the other day saying uh, Tony Blair had suffered no consequences at all for the Iraq war. And everybody's going, what about the Jill Cotton crime? No way of saying that. And I think there's a, there's a democratic imperative that you ought to be able to talk back to your MP. The problem is how do you prevent the kind of racist, sexist threats, mm. all the terrible stuff that pollutes Twitter but fundamentally, if you if your MP cannot be talked back to, it's a very difficult situation, isn't it? So we should stop that. No, I agree. Yes, fine. Also, Therese Coffee, if you're listening, please unblock me. Absolutely. Where's your sense of humour, Therese Coffee? Hold up. 
Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the podcast, which means escape routes. What are the books, films, TV, music, any other kind of cultural mind break? that is enabling our panel to deal with the misery of politics. By the way, succession spoilers are not allowed. <laughs> Marie, what is your escape room for this week? Um, it, it's I, I'm afraid to say is going to be uh, both a very embarrassing and a very Marie choice, uh, which is that I am, but I could not be more thrilled uh, by the fact that Shadow and Bone has returned to Netflix for a second season. Mm-hmm. It is, if I'm entirely honest, basically just young adult fiction, so adapted from books. And I mean, and it, and it is the classic, right? It's just, you know, beautiful people in fancy clothes doing some sort of magic and some people are evil some people are not and it's quite a dark and complicated world um and yeah and i, I just I, yeah also quite a lot of gay people committing crimes which i'm always in favor of um it's just really good it i i, I adore it it's really shameful and i'd not realized it was coming back for a second season and i noticed it the other day and generally it was like my christmas this is your elon musk list trust rom-com <laughs> on the road all over again isn't it gavin how about you my escape routes in the last few days have included looking at jellyfish in the Berlin Aquarium. I can absolutely oh. tell you that that is one of the most lovely things that I've seen in a long time. I was absolutely astonished by that. And also looking at a Sophia Loren film called The Life Ahead, which if you haven't seen, you should do. It's positive, life-affirming and wonderful. I'll never catch on. Oh, here, how about you? I wish I'd been looking at jellyfish. That sounds lovely. Like, what, like you said that. And I was like, well, they're all over British beaches. They're <laughs> yeah, smelly right. right now. No, my ones were moving, actually. They weren't, they weren't <laughs> debris. That's why they were so nice. I have, as of uh, the weekend, finished watching the first series of an Apple TV uh, sci-fi show called Foundation, uh, and I enjoyed it uh, tremendously. There's a, there's a second series that's coming out uh, this summer, so I wanted to learn what was happening in the first. Set in the distant future with this uh, grand galactic empire that seems to be a corollary of the fall of the Roman Empire. And um, Jared Harris's character comes up with a theory of how populations uh, sort of move in order to, in some ways, quote unquote, predict the future and predicts the fall of this uh, empire. And the way that that all sort of unfolds and goes along is absolutely fantastic. I think that uh, Lee Pace in particular, uh, who plays the emperor, is like it's so scary uh, uh but in, in, like incredibly charismatic in that role like seems like a full-on roman emperor but also one of the handsomest men to have ever lived mm. usually lee pace you know, oh, so yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. only contribution here he was great with hail as well um that's the science of psychohistory mm. isn't it yeah yes precisely mm. so it's a good show that the casting is very good mine has been um a show called beef on netflix which is fantastic it is a, a set in contemporary los angeles there is a road rage spat between a uh, down-on-his-look Korean-American handyman and a very well-to-do small businesswoman uh, who runs a kind of uh, bijou boutique plant business and it escalates horribly, horribly out of hand. 
And the wonderful thing about it is that these characters are both from massively different stations in LA society, the kind of bourgeois bohemian with connections to all the kind of right people and all the uh, the trendy restaurants, and the guy who's basically living hand to mouth and is a, is a bit of a fuck up. And the great thing about them is that they have... You know, both of them are kind of drawn towards trying to be a decent version of themselves, but cannot let the beef go. And the way that they are driven by this small altercation, which shouldn't really mean anything. Firstly, we talked about Twitter earlier. It will remind anybody of the way things just, you know, the uh, the that escalated quickly syndrome. But also, it's just brilliantly plotted, brilliantly funny. It is one of the strangest, most hilarious, and really kind of anxiety-producing uh, shows. It's a social thriller. I really, really recommend it. It's beef on Netflix, and it actually doesn't involve any beef at all, so it's appropriate for vegans. And that's the podcast, so thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, Marie Lacance. Thank you. Thank you, Ahir Shah. Thank you. And thank you, our man in Berlin, Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. Thank you. Listeners, if you like this edition, remember, you can keep us going by supporting Oh God, What Now? on Patreon. You get all kinds of good stuff, including access to our monthly podcaster's question time live on Zoom. The next one is on Thursday, the 27th of April, and Ros Taylor is in the hot seat answering your questions. Just search Oh God, What Now? Patreon to find out how to sign up. We'll have some names for our latest backers on Wednesday's show. So for now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Andrew Harrison with Marie LeConte, Ahir Shah, and Gavin Esler. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Oh God, What Now?